A few weeks ago, I read a sad story about a mother and a father who were both arrested for the murder of their 10-year-old son. And it was a terribly tragic and sad story. But the, the interesting thing about this story is that the police did not initially believe that the parents were to blame. In fact, his death was initially classified as uh, unexplained. When the police first arrived on the scene, the parents told them that the child had been complaining about being too hot, so they tried to cool him by putting him in a tub of cool water, but it was too little, too late. The boy died shortly thereafter, and the, the, the police initially thought that the death was related to that, to the heat. They reported that because the home lacked central air conditioning and the home was only cooled by a window unit and a few fans, the boy probably got too hot. It was not until the medical examiner did an autopsy that they found evidence of foul play. Turns out that this death, the death of this child was not unknown. The boy had died from dehydration. Apparently, the boy's parents, as a form of punishment, would withhold water from him, sometimes for days. They would punish their 10-year-old son by denying him water. Can you imagine that? Well, after receiving the report, the police did some further investigation, and they discovered that before this boy's death, he had gone without water for close to six days. And due to these abuses and the fact that the boy died from these abuses, his parents were soon convicted and sentenced to life in prison. Now, let me ask you this. Why did the parents face such a serious penalty here? I mean, it's not like they laid hands on the child, right, as far as we know. They didn't poison his food or his drink. They just withheld water from him as a form of punishment. So why was the punishment for them so severe? Well, the answer is simple, right? The reason why the penalty was so severe is because by withholding water from their child, they were essentially withholding life from him. By keeping water from their son, they were preventing him from having one of the things that, one of the most important things that the body needs for survival. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 4. We're continuing our sermon series through the Gospel of John this morning entitled Knowing Jesus from John. And in today's sermon, we're going to be talking about our need for water and the importance of knowing Jesus as the living water. So John chapter 4. Two weeks ago, we talked about the familiar encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus. And today we're going to talk about another familiar encounter between Jesus and the woman at the well. And we're going to learn three key truths from this chapter. Here's the first one, number one. First truth we learn. 
from this text is that everyone has a spiritual thirst that needs to be quenched. Everyone has a spiritual thirst that needs to be quenched. Look at John 4. In this text, we are told in the first few verses that Jesus is traveling with his disciples and he had gone through Samaria to a town called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, when he arrived, he was, he was tired, he was wearied, and he was thirsty because of this long journey. And he sat down near this well, and we're told that it was about the sixth hour. Let's pick up reading in verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So here we have Jesus, and he finds this well. And he's sitting there by the well, by himself, and his disciples have gone into town to buy some food, to get some food. And he's just sitting there all alone, and this woman comes up to him to draw, well, she comes up to the well nearby to draw water. And it's the same well where Jesus is, and and, and she's alone, and Jesus says to her, give me a drink. So Let's think about what we have here so far. We have this woman who is going to this well to draw water because she's probably thirsty and and she's running low. And Jesus is there who has been on this long journey and he is there and we're told he's wearied from travel and he is thirsty as well. So we see here in these first few verses a problem that all people without exception have we are a thirsty people Jesus is thirsty here and so is this woman and so are we all right we all have a physical thirst that can never ultimately be quenched which is why we have to go on a daily basis to places where we can access water because we need it daily we have a thirst that cannot ultimately be quenched we are dependent creatures we are a needy people we have needs for things like food and water notice in the story the disciples go into town and get what food They go get food. We we need these things. We need food. We need water. We are a needy and dependent people. And it's so important that we're reminded of this because oftentimes we don't think about this in our society, do we, very much? Because we rarely go without in our country. I mean, think about it. Here in the U.S., we have clean water everywhere. We have water in our kitchens, in our utility rooms, in our bathrooms, water outside to water the lawn and wash the car. We have water everywhere. We also have plenty of food, don't we? It's rare that we miss a meal. But have you ever had your water shut off for some reason or another? Or have you ever been out in the middle of nowhere, not had access to food and drink? In these situations, we realize pretty quickly how much We need these things. So if you think about it deep down, we are a needy people. We are a lot like the woman at the well here. 
We have things that we have to have to stay alive. And in a moment, we're going to see here that, that Jesus, by striking up this conversation with this woman, is trying to get this woman at the well to realize that, but not only that, more important than that, he's trying to get her to see that she is in need of something even deeper than that. He's trying to get her to see that her needs go far beyond the physical. Skip on down to verse 13. Look at it with me. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So notice what we see here. Like we talked about two weeks ago with Jesus and Nicodemus. Remember, they're speaking, and we talked about the fact that while Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, the two are on different pages, aren't they? Remember that? Remember in John 3, we discussed how Jesus is speaking figuratively and spiritually to Nicodemus, but Nicodemus is trying to understand what Jesus is saying in a literal and physical way. Jesus is talking about being spiritually reborn, and Nicodemus is thinking about entering into his mother's womb for a second time. Here we have a similar dilemma. Jesus is talking about quenching this woman's thirst for good, and she's thinking, great, yeah, quench my thirst so that I never have to come to this well ever again and draw water. She's thinking of physical water here, isn't she? But what's Jesus talking about? Well, like with Nicodemus in John 3, Jesus is not speaking literally, but figuratively and spiritually here. He's talking about providing spiritual water for this woman, and he's talking about quenching her spiritual thirst. He's talking here about salvation to this woman. Notice he says, the water that I'm talking about that I will give will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He's talking about salvation here and says, the water you're drinking, though it's good, it does not ultimately satisfy. After drinking it, you're going to have to come back. You're going to be thirsty again. And you're going to have to come back again and again for more and more. Jesus says, the water I'm talking about, it satisfies. It doesn't quench your thirst for an hour and then you get thirsty again. No, the water Jesus is talking about here is a spiritual water and the thirst a spiritual thirst. But we see here at the end of verse 15, the woman's still not getting it. She still has yet to catch on to what Jesus is is saying. She's still thinking literally. She's talking about her thirst for physical water. So in the following verses, Jesus makes what he is saying more obvious. Notice what he says at the beginning of verse 16 through verse 18. Jesus said to the woman, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. 
See, back in John 3, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, Jesus was talking about being born again. And Nicodemus is, is puzzled by that. He's like, what do you mean, Jesus? You know, what, what do you mean I have to be born again? Nicodemus had a, a, a tough time looking beyond the physical. He could only see the tangible, the perceivable, the palpable, but could not look beyond it. Jesus was trying to get him to go beyond it, but Nicodemus couldn't. And in a similar sense, in John 4, Jesus is trying to get the woman at the well here to see beyond her physical thirst. He wanted her to see that she had a deeper spiritual need and she's not getting it. And so Jesus says, go call your husband and have him come here. And she responds by saying, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, you're right, you don't. You've actually had five husbands in the past and the man that you're now with isn't your husband at all. Now, what's Jesus doing here? Why is he calling her out in this way? Is he trying to make her feel bad? Is he trying to make her feel guilty? No. What Jesus is trying to show her is that her need goes much deeper than the water at the bottom of some well. By exposing her sin, he is trying to show her that she has a much deeper-seated spiritual need. He's trying to show her that all of these broken relationships that she's had in the past reveals that she is in pain and has never known what it feels like to truly be loved. He's showing her by reminding her of all of the broken relationships that she's experienced in life and all the rejection that she's felt in life. He's showing her that she has never received what she longs for, which is a relationship where she is valued for who she truly is. And she's never been loved in a way she longs to be loved in an unconditional and in a sacrificial way. He shows her here just like her thirst for water, that she has this thirst for a loving, trusting, fulfilling, and lasting relationship. So Jesus gets right to the heart of the matter. He says, enough with all this talk of your temporary, earthly, and secondary concerns. I'm going to cut right to the heart of it. And I'm going to show you that what you long for and what you need goes much deeper than the water at the bottom of this well. I believe John has given us a story because he wants us, the reader, to relate to this woman at the well. There's a lot of ways in which we can, right? Now, we may not have the same issues that she's having here, but one thing we do all, every one of us, without exception, share with her is that all of us have a deeper-seated spiritual need. We have this hunger and this thirst that goes far beyond the physical. We have a thirst for lasting happiness. And we try our hardest to find it in relationships, in social status, in money, in our jobs. And we think that if we, if we work hard enough, we'll finally get to the point where we find satisfaction that lasts. But we learn by the example that John gives us here, as well as all throughout Scripture, as well as in our life, right? That lasting happiness cannot be experienced in the palpable, in the, in the temporary things of this world. 
And that should make sense to us, right? Shouldn't it? I mean, how can something that is earthly and temporal bring about something that's lasting? This makes sense. I love the old U2 song, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. It really gets at the heart of this. Listen to these lyrics. I have climbed the highest mountain. I have, I have run through the fields only to be with you. I have run, I have crawled, I have scaled these city walls only to be with you, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Those lyrics are so true, aren't they? We're reminded of this time and time again throughout the scriptures. We're reminded that we can climb the highest mountains, we can run through the fields, we can run, we can crawl, we can scale the city walls in pursuit of satisfaction that lasts, in pursuit of happiness long term, and we will not find it in the things of this world because it's not to be found in the earthly and temporal things of this life. All those activities do is leave us thirsty. So this is the first thing we learn in this passage is that all of us, every one of us, without exception, we have this spiritual thirst that needs to be quenched. Every one of us is thirsty. But we also learn from this passage that anyone who is willing can have their spiritual thirst quenched. Anyone who is willing can have their spiritual thirst quenched. Look at verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Now let's stop there for a minute. Let me recap briefly where we are in the story. Jesus is sitting by this well, and this Samaritan woman comes up, and to the well and he strikes up this conversation with her and he says give me a drink which surprises the woman I mean she's shocked here and here's why number one because he's a man and she's a woman in that day it was not customary for men and women to talk like this out in public together so just a man and a woman talking out in public was considered to be highly inappropriate Second reason why is because Jesus was a Jew and she is a Samaritan. And the two did not like each other one bit. I mean, there was such an intense hatred between these two groups that many of the Jews would often not take the route that Jesus and his disciples took through Samaria into Sychar. They would bypass it altogether. They'd take the long way around just to avoid encountering any Samaritans on their journey. That's a pretty intense hatred, isn't it? The third reason why this woman is shocked is because Jesus asks her for a drink. Now let me tell you why this would have been shocking. When, this, when, when Jesus tells this woman, give me a drink, it's implied here, could you make me with your cup a drink of water? Well, guess what? If a Jewish person would have seen Jesus in that day drinking from the cup of a Samaritan woman, they would have co considered Jesus to have been ceremonially unclean. So she's thinking to herself, what on earth is going on here? 
I have this Jewish man talking to me, a Samaritan woman, out in public, asking me for a drink from my cup. This would have been shocking for her, and it would have been shocking for anyone else looking on. And then to make matters even more shocking, we find out later in this text what kind of woman this is. This is not just any woman. This is a, an immoral woman that Jesus is talking to. A woman of questionable reputation, say the least. Many believe that that's why this woman's there at noon. You see, in this day as well as today, it's very hot in this part of the world. So women, when they went to go draw water, they would go in the cool of the day. They'd go in the morning or they'd go in the evening. And I believe it's significant that this woman is there at noon. It's probably because everyone knew about her reputation and she had been shunned in the community and she was going at noon to avoid ridicule by herself. And that's why her and Jesus have this private conversation because they're the only two there. So the fact that Jesus is talking to this woman, initiating this conversation with this woman is a very big deal, very shocking. But it reveals to us something very important about Jesus, doesn't it? And it's a lesson we learn throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. We learn here Jesus came for these types of people, didn't he? He did. He came for the outsiders and the downcast, the lowly and the unpopular. He came to be known by them and to call them out for his purposes. And we see this throughout the course of Jesus' life, don't we? And we see this here. And believers, this is to be our mentality and our mission as well. Now, many question that, especially when it comes to associating with immoral people. They'll say, well, I thought we were supposed to be set apart, you know? Separate from the world. There was a televangelist in the 1970s who had this mentality. His name was uh, O.L. Jaggers. And uh, he had a lot of property for sale in the 70s out in the desert. And he was selling plots of land to people to build a great big city. And he was going to build a wall around this city to keep the sin out. That was his, that's what he wanted to do. What well, made him a lot of money and eventually landed him in jail. See, he couldn't avoid sin no matter how hard he tried because everywhere he went, he was there. Believers, that's, that's not to be our mentality. Scripture is clear that we're to be in the world, but not of the world. But we're to be in the world. Now, what does that look like? Well, I like the way John MacArthur puts it. He says this, it's not no contact, it's no conformity. I like that. That's good. Contact, not conformity. Was that not the ministry of the Lord Jesus? He spent a lot of time with drunkards and prostitutes and adulterers and tax collectors, all kinds and types of sinners. He went after them and he ministered to them. He often bypassed the self-righteous and went for the down and out, the social outcasts. Why? Because they needed him. And they were honest about their spiritual thirst and willing to look to Christ to quench it. Remember, Jesus said, that's the kind of people I've come for. Luke 5.32, he said, I have not come to call the righteous, but who? Sinners to repentance. He also summed up his ministry like this. Jesus said, I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. Not just seek and save the Jews, not seek and save the religious, but the lost. 
And believers, this is to be our approach as well. We're not to avoid the world, but we're to be in the middle of the world. We're to love the world. We're to take people who are sexually immoral and greedy and idolatrous and wicked, and we're to love them, and we're to serve them, and we're to minister to them so that we can win them to Christ. We're not to do what they do, but listen, we're to do what others don't do. And that we're to go to them, we're to reach out to them, and we're to minister to them, we're to share Christ with them. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 14 through 16, you are the light of the world, believers, church. A city on a hill that cannot be hidden. So don't be hidden, right? We're not to be hidden, don't be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp, he says, and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Believers, we like Jesus are to be getting out in the world and representing him by letting our light shine before men. We're not to be cut off from, but in the middle of the world, taking this message of hope to the hopeless, knowing that anyone and everyone, no matter who they are and what they've done, can have their spiritual thirst quenched if they are willing. Well, there's one final point that we find here in this text, and it's this, number three. Jesus is the only one able to quench our spiritual thirst. So we have learned that we all have a spiritual thirst that needs to be quenched and that everyone who is willing can have this spiritual thirst quenched. And here we learn that Jesus is the only one who can satisfy our spiritual hunger and quench our spiritual thirst. Like we've said already, though, many search the world over for that one thing that's going to provide them satisfaction that lasts. There is only one who can quench that thirst, who can satisfy that hunger that we all have, and that's Jesus. Look again at verse 10 of John chapter 4. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is, that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus tells the woman here, though you have this problem, though you are a needy and dependent person and have this thirst that cannot be quenched by the things of this world, Jesus says, I have the solution. I have what you need. I am able to quench your spiritual thirst and satisfy your, your restless soul. Notice again what he says in verse 10. He says, if you knew the gift of God. Now let's stop there for a second. What is the gift of God or who is the gift of God? We learn in the previous chapter, don't we? John three sixteen. Many of y'all know it. You don't even have to turn there, right? For God so loved the world that what? He gave his son. Jesus is the gift. God has given us the gift we need to satisfy our thirst, and it's his son, Jesus. Jesus said to the woman, if you knew the gift of God, or in other words, if you knew me and who I am, 
You would have asked me for a drink and I would have given you living water to forever quench your thirsty spirit. So we learn here in verse 10, Jesus is the solution. The problem is we're, we're thirsty. We have this deep spiritual thirst, this deep longing, a deep hunger for lasting satisfaction. And the solution is that Jesus is the living water who provides lasting satisfaction to a thirsty and hungry and restless soul. So Jesus is the solution. Now let's talk briefly before we close here about how he is the solution. How is Jesus the solution? How is Jesus able to meet this need that we all have? How is he able to satisfy this craving that runs deep inside of each and every one of us? Well, there are many different ways in which he does this, but there's one in particular I want to focus on with this text in mind. One of the main ways that Jesus can satisfy our spiritual thirst is because he himself has become thirsty. Jesus can satisfy our thirst because he himself has become thirsty. Let me explain what I mean. Look at John chapter 4, verse 6 again. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So here we have Jesus. He's been traveling on foot all morning for some time. Says it was about the sixth hour, which means it was about noon. More than likely, Jesus and his disciples had been on the road since daybreak. So they've been walking for about six hours and we're told he's worn out. In verse 6, John tells us Jesus is wearied from his journey. Now think about that for a minute. Don't pass over that too quickly. Jesus was tired. He was weary. And he became thirsty. You ever felt that way? You ever get worn out, thirsty? Think about how that feels. Then think about this. Jesus had the same experience. Times he was worn out needed to sit down and have something cool to drink. Now, some will say, well, Jesus wasn't really thirsty. I mean, come on, you know. He's the God-man. He's he's Superman. How can he truly be thirsty? Well, if he wasn't, let me ask you this. Why does John say that he was? Is he lying? No, we don't believe that, do we, believers? No, during Jesus' earthly ministry, he experienced exhaustion and thirst and hunger. You know why? Because he became one of us in the truest sense. He took on flesh. He became like us. And he experienced what we experience. And we see that here. Though the eternal Son of God was and is and will always be God and is in need of no one or nothing because he is God, He chose to identify with us in every way. He took on flesh and he experienced the limitations that we experience to the extent of becoming thirsty and tired from a six-hour walk. Why? Why did he do this? For us. To redeem us. Jesus came to earth so that he could redeem us. Listen to this. He could not have done that had he not become one of us. Listen to Hebrews 2.16. The author of Hebrews says this, Hebrews 2.16. For surely it is not angels that he, Jesus, helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. 
Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Listen, Jesus did not become an angel. I know some of you are like, I know that. You know, it's Christianity 101, right? But he didn't. You need to think about that. Jesus did not become an angel. You know why? Because he didn't come to redeem angels. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He became a man in the truest sense. You know why? Because he came to redeem people. He came here to redeem humans, which is why he became one himself. It's very important that we affirm that Christ became a man because we, you and me, men and women, are who Christ came to redeem. And because he was a true man, in the truest sense, fully man, he was able to be our substitute. And when he went to the cross and died, he died as a man for you and for me. He died as a human like us. And when he's dying on the cross, he's dying for us. He's dying the death we deserve to die, functioning as our substitute. Listen, if Jesus was not fully man, he couldn't do any of that. Couldn't truly die in our place and redeem us from a life of sin and restore us to a right relationship with God. He had to become one of us in every way so that he might become the true substitute for us. And that's what he did. And that's why he's able, folks, to satisfy this craving that runs deep inside of each and every one of us. That's why he and only he is able to quench our spiritual thirst. That's why he and only he is able to satisfy our spiritual hunger. Let me end with this. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like the woman at the well. You're here and you've sought all kinds of ways to be satisfied in life. And you've come up empty time and time again. Listen, Jesus has made a way for you to be satisfied. And like the woman at the well, he invites you to come to him and satisfy this thirst that you have for happiness and for purpose and for fulfillment and for joy. He says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 and 29, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says, come to me, and you will find rest for your souls. If you're restless this morning, you have this thirst for lasting satisfaction, this hunger for happiness in your life, I invite you to come and, and, and come before Jesus and place your faith and your trust in Him and in Him alone. Because get this, He alone is able to grant lasting satisfaction to a restless and hungry and thirsty soul. Let's pray.